Now on to the main event, our review of Iron Man 3. No. Which, no. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. We are not doing that a second time. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. This is We Can Do This All Day, episode 10. One zero review of Thor the Dark World. Take one. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. It's an episode and- 10 miracle. I was going to say, Emily looks very happy over there in Studio E. That was perfect. While we were, while I was reading that off, she was just beaming. She was dancing in her studio. So it sounded good to you? Yeah, it sounded great over here. Oh, great. Nice job. Yes, as Emily was referencing in the middle of that little impromptu celebration, this is our 10th episode, everybody. Thank you so much. If you've been with us since day one, way back in July of 2020, thank you so much for sticking with us for what's been a really, really neat ride. I'm having a blast doing in this Emily. I don't know about you. I am having a really good time and look, we made it all the way to 10 episodes. We are in double digits now, my friend. I'm having a good time. My wrist and ongoing RSI issues are not having a good time, but everything oh, no. else. <laughs> it's been one it's been one of those weeks over mousing. Yeah. Well, you know, Emily does edit this podcast and so our Iron Man 3 episode dropped just a few days before this recording, so I know she was working feverishly to get that prepared. So, thank you for sacrificing your body for the good of our audience. Tonight, for our 10th episode, we will be reviewing Thor The Dark World, the second film in Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But first, as always, MCU news. Just a quick reminder, Falcon and the Winter Soldier will be premiering on Friday, March 19th on Disney+. Plus. There have been a lot of ads going around on the internet for this show. I know I cannot wait. I know Emily cannot wait. In fact, I know Emily is so not going to wait. I guarantee the moment she gets off of work every single Friday during the duration of that show, she's just going to go watch it and, you know, simultaneously win at yoga, which I still don't know how she does, but that's her thing. We have to institute a no spoiler policy whenever we have our Friday night chats, okay? You can't spoil it for me after you finish watching it. I respect other people's need to not be spoiled. I do not want to be spoiled. I know you don't mind. I know you encourage people to spoil you, but that's not me. We've also found out that the Loki series will be debuting on Disney Plus on Friday, June 11th. They finally shored up that date. It'll be the third MCU series to debut on Disney Plus, so that'll be coming up. Uh, we got a bit of a wait after Falcon and the Winter Soldier ends before we get to that, but they still think that Black Widow is going to drop that first week of May, so I think they're sort of letting that be her month, although I'm still a little dubious about that movie coming out in theaters. We will see. And then also, kind of the most titillating piece of MCU news to drop in just the last few days. After being trolled by the cast with a couple of different fake-out titles, it was finally revealed that the third Spider-Man film in the MCU will be called Spider-Man No Way Home. 
It was kind of a fun little bit that was uh, going around on social media and the internet for a couple of days prior where Zendaya had this thing where she was saying that the official title of the movie was going to be Spider-Man Home Slice. And then Jacob Badalone said it was going to be Spider-Man Home Wrecker. And then Tom Holland came out and said, no, it's going to be Spider-Man Phone Home. And then they had this big sort of culminating little bit. And it was revealed that it will, in fact, be called Spider-Man No Way Home. And at the moment, it is set to drop on Christmas Day 2021. Very exciting. We may, if the fates allow, have four MCU movies in the same year, which has never happened before. I think Homewrecker would have been a good one. I think that would fit, given how Far From Home ended. I think Homewrecker would have been okay. I do think it's kind of an apt title, but I like No Way Home too. Yeah, and I mean, that one also makes sense, given the situation. Now, on to the main event. Our review of Thor The Dark World which opened on November 8th, 2013 in the United States. It stars Chris Hemsworth, Natalie Portman, Tom Hiddleston, Anthony Hopkins, Stellan Skarsgård, Idris Elba, Christopher Eccleston, bear with me on this one, Adwale Akonoye Agbaye, I've been practicing how to pronounce that one, so I think I got it right, Kat Dennings, Ray Stevenson, Zachary Levy, Tadanobu Asano, Jamie Alexander, and Rene Russo. Story by Don Payne and Robert Rodat. Screenplay by Christopher Yost, Christopher Marcus, and Stephen McFeely. Yes, the same Marcus and McFeely who wrote the three cat movies, Infinity War and Endgame. The film is directed by Alan Taylor, who up to that point was a very celebrated director of cable TV dramas such as Six Feet Under, Sex and the City, The Sopranos, Mad Men, Deadwood, Boardwalk Empire, and perhaps most notably in recent years, Game of Thrones. The story of how Taylor became the film's director is almost a saga unto itself. Thor director Kenneth Branagh was initially invited to direct the sequel to his movie, but declined, citing the speed at which Marvel was demanding that he work in ramping up production. So they then offered it to Brian Kirk, who had directed Game of Thrones and some other notable cable dramas, but he bowed out after contract negotiations fell apart. They then offered the director's chair to Patty Jenkins, who directed the highly acclaimed feature film Monster, starring Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci. Two months later, she bowed out, owing to that most famous of reasons, creative differences. Patty Jenkins would, of course, go on to direct Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 84 for DC and Warner Brothers. Taylor was then locked in as the director just a couple of months after Jenkins bowed out. At the box office, on a budget of somewhere between 150 and 170 million, Thor the Dark World grossed 644.8 million, a significant hit by any other standard, but after two back-to-back billion-dollar blockbusters, Thor the Dark World seems like a bit of a disappointment from a financial standpoint. In fact, it's currently the fifth lowest grossing MCU film, just ahead of Thor, Ant-Man, Captain America the First Avenger, and The Incredible Hulk. This is the first MCU film to be released not during the summer movie season, and only one of three to be released during the holiday season so far, along with Doctor Strange and Thor Ragnarok. Eternals is currently slated to be the fourth this coming November, COVID willing. This is also the first MCU film to be distributed by Marvel Studios and not in conjunction with Paramount Pictures. With all those billion dollar films, they didn't need to borrow any more money, I guess. So, the film overall. I know, Emily, that you'll talk about this a bit later on, but I'll start off by saying that for the first hour or so of this movie, I was reminded how much I really liked it 
when it first came out. You know, it starts off with this intriguing premise. It has lots of the hallmarks of what makes a great Thor movie, such as an epic fantasy feel combined with sci-fi, makes it very reminiscent, maybe even more so than Thor Ragnarok, of 80s sci-fi fantasy movies like Willow or Krull or Flash Gordon. And I say more so because that's what Taika Waititi was going for himself in Ragnarok. It's got the humor one would expect from a Thor movie, and it's got great character moments, especially the ones between Loki and Thor, and, well, let's be honest, Loki and anyone else. So you've got great story moments and great character moments, but in my opinion, none of them work together to end up making a cohesive whole. As a result, you don't really have either a plot-driven picture or a character-driven picture. You just kind of have a bunch of above-average scenes strung together in a way that mostly makes sense, but in which, ultimately, nothing really happens. I think that's part of the problem with the Phase 2 movies that are sequels, with the exception of Winter Soldier, of course. They're in the unenviable position of having to be both standalone films and to serve as introductions to people and places and things that will become important later on. In the case of Thor The Dark World, it's like the main purpose of the film is to set up the Aether as an Infinity Stone, spring Loki from the dungeon for later use, and get Odin and Frigga. I know I said her name was pronounced Freya, and I still believe that in most Norse languages, Freya is a real name but apparently that's what they call her in this film, so that's what we're going to refer to her as, Frigga. So, set up the Aether as an Infinity Stone, spring Loki from the dungeon, and get Odin and Frigga out of the way. It seems like that's what this film was mainly trying to set up. And then there's that fight at the end, which, cool as it is, ends up being the poster child for the ridiculous set piece at the end of a superhero movie. I think all this will definitely come out in the episode, but it took me most of the movie to realize what it was that I didn't like about this movie. And I think I've only seen it maybe three times total. First in theaters, although I don't remember it, but I'm sure it happened. Second, when it came out on DVD, and then again for the podcast. So before this week, it had been years since I'd even considered watching it or changing my opinion outside of, you know, like, it's lame, air quotes. But what you said about setting up the ether as an infinity stone and getting Loki ready for his next set of stuff to do and removing Odin and Frigga is exactly right. And what makes this movie not as bad as the other movies that I have near the bottom of my list, you know, movies like Incredible Hulk and Iron Man 2, is because at the very least, this movie is tied to the rest of the universe even though it's pretty loose, but it also feels so disconnected and empty. Like, especially in the final fight, it's almost like there's no impact felt from Thor and Malakath's fight in Greenwich, even though a literal spaceship crash-landed in one of the most populated cities in the world. If you think about in Civil War, when Secretary Ross brings up all the times the Avengers have screwed up, he mentions New York, Sokovia, Lagos, DC, but he doesn't mention London. And even on his map, there's not even a dot over London. I wonder that too, yeah. And maybe it's because they can't really do anything about it because Thor is pretty often off-world and he's not really involved in Earth affairs. But it also just adds to the fact that, like, none of what happened in this movie is important. Like I said, elements end up being important. They were trying to set up just a handful of things, but it's like everything else that did happen in the movie, it's like it didn't matter. That's the disappointing part of the movie. There's just so much kind of left on the floor when it's all over with. So where would you put this in your rankings, Emily? So I had to move some stuff around again. Last time we recorded I had moved Iron Man 2 down from 11th to 16th I have now moved Iron Man 2 to 19 and I moved Incredible Hulk from 18 to 20 and I put Thor Dark World at 18 you redo your rankings like every time we watch a movie I mean no but I didn't think that Thor was as bad as I like before I watched it for the episode in my head I probably would have put it at like 
21st or 22nd. Like, I would have put it really, really low, but I didn't feel like it was that low. And I liked it better than Iron Man 2 and Incredible Hulk, but I still thought it was bad. So things had to get moved around. Of course. To accommodate that. But, like, my top five, I can tell you for certain that when we watch the rest of my top five, those aren't going to change. But Mine neither, I don't think. Stuff needed to get moved around to accommodate the fact that things change. You know, I haven't redone my list yet. I'm not going to do that until we record Winter Soldier in a few weeks. But I would put this as sort of that weird bottom section somewhere between 15 and 23. I don't know specifically where it would go. I kind of lump it and Iron Man 3 and Guardians 2, which I know you haven't seen yet, and a couple other things all together in kind of that big mess. But I don't really know exactly where it would be. So in three more weeks, maybe I'll have an answer for you as to where exactly it goes. But it would definitely be no higher than 15. And probably not 15, probably more like 17 or 18. Well, maybe as part of our Winter Soldier extravaganza, we'll sort of go through and do a redo of our rankings real quick, since that's going to be a long episode anyway. We might as well throw that in. Well, and my ranking right now, actually, the way I'm doing it, isn't finished and so I have the top five because we've done that and then I have all the movies that we've watched so far are ranked but movies that we haven't watched for the podcast aren't ranked so that's why there's more motion I guess because there's 12 movies that I haven't ranked yet because I want to come into this clear and so here we go with the movie in a voiceover by Odin we learn that his father Bor led as guardian armies against Malekith, ruler of the Dark Elves of Svartalheim, in a war many eons ago. Malekith was attempting to return the universe to a state of darkness using a mysterious force known as the Aether, which he planned to unleash as the Nine Realms lined up in a state of convergence. Bor, however, was able to take the Aether from Malekith and defeat the Dark Elf army. Sacrificing the rest of his soldiers for cover, Malekith and his lieutenant, Algrim, escape. While the rest of the universe believes that the Aether has been destroyed, Bor, claiming it could not be destroyed, ordered it buried somewhere where no one would ever find it. Okay, so I'm going to immediately take us into a side quest, and I'm only a little bit sorry about this, but doesn't Malekith kind of look a little bit like a less green version of a scroll? Uh, a little bit. A little bit. I think a he looks bit. more, I think he looks a little more sort of Nosferatu Dracula-ish. Yeah, so like a Nosferatu scroll combo deal. I'd be willing to You'd consider entertain that. It? I would entertain it. I don't know if I'd 100% agree with it, but I'll entertain it. I'll take it under advisement. Also, will you entertain that the Dark Elves use the same bombers as the Rebels in Star Wars? Yeah, they do look a little bit like the bombers that Rose Tico's sister flew in uh, Last Jedi. Yeah. Only a lot bigger. Yeah, lot, that was when, when I watched this fight scene. My first thought was, oh, like the bombers in Star Wars. I wonder if you're the first person to notice that. Oh, I... Probably not. As a very casual Star Wars fan, I can't imagine being the first person. If there's one thing this film has that Ragnarok was actually lacking, and not that Taika Waititi ever intended to have it in his film, but, you know, whatever. It's the kind of large-scale battle scenes that you'd expect of a fantasy movie or TV series, whether it be Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. The fight at the end of Ragnarok, where it's the Asgardians versus Hela's army of the undead, is a great fight, but somehow it lacks that epic quality that the first two Thor movies have in a lot of their big set-piece battles, or any fantasy film, where you've got armies clashing and lots of swords and hand-to-hand combat on vast battlefields. We're talking about beings that are the basis of Norse mythology. War is in their blood, and you really get that sense of epic scale in this movie. Fast forward to just after the events of the Avengers. Loki is led in chains before Odin, who has sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in the dungeon on Asgard. I like the brief exchange where Loki says, it's not that I don't love our little talks, it's just I don't love them. 
And there goes Loki again, complaining about his birthright to rule. I'll say this for Odin. He's right when he tells Loki that it was his birthright to die as a child. What is it he says? If I had not taken you in, you would not be here now to hate me. Which I think is a great line. Although, if Loki was Laufey's son, wouldn't he have been the rightful king of Jotunheim? Like, I'm sure if he was intentionally cast aside or lost during the battle just so Odin could find him and buy his goodwill or whatever and save him, Odin is not exactly an A-plus parent, as we all know. We also don't know if Loki was Laufey's only son. For all we know, Loki had siblings. Meanwhile, Thor, Sif, and the Warriors Three are busy trying to rein in the chaos in the Nine Realms resulting from the destruction of the Bifrost back in Thor. We get a cool battle on Vanaheim, the homeworld of Hogan. I love this scene because you get a nice little reintroduction slash encapsulation of everything that you love about a Thor movie. There's a big battle, there's the witty banter, there's our hero making his boldest, most heroic entrance into a Marvel movie yet. I just love everything looks like it's about to go sideways and he just shows up in the Bifrost and music swells and he's standing there holding that striking pose and Mjolnir comes back to him and then he just goes off and starts kicking butt. With the Nine Realms at peace again, Thor returns to Asgard to report his victory to Dad. Odin tells him how proud of him he is and that he's ready to be king. He also tells him to stop thinking about Jane Foster and to move on with his life, something which Thor clearly isn't ready to do yet. So, if the saying, ignorance is bliss, ever applied to anyone... It's gotta be Thor. He starts off as this foolish idiot, but at least he's happy. Now he's much more mature and wise and thoughtful, but he's miserable. I suppose it's like most people's experiences as they grow up. You know, when you're a child, you may not know much about the world, but you're carefree and you're able to have a good old time. And then as you grow older, you grow wiser, but you also come to realize that life as a grown-up kind of sucks because now you've got responsibilities and so forth. And clearly Thor misses Jane terribly. But just as he's accepted that he has responsibilities to his people, he seems to have accepted, albeit very reluctantly, that he will likely never have a future with Jane. And we're led to wonder whether or not he's going overboard with the duty and obligation thing. It's also interesting how Sif also pulls Thor aside and infers that he spends too much time moping over Jane. And I wonder, is she doing that as a friend? Or is it because she's trying to draw his attention? Which is interesting because they uh, never bring this up again. <laughs> like, I don't even remember yeah. what exists of Sif in Ragnarok or in any of the other movies. Like, obviously she's there, but... We don't see her in Ragnarok. Okay, yeah. So what even is the point of this if she's not there? And I also think it's interesting because Jane, in terms of love interest, was the least flat of all of them, excluding Peggy. Like, if you think about Betty, if you think about how Pepper became over the course of the Iron Man movies, and then Jane also gets dumped in terms of good writing. And I know, obviously, there's outside real-world influences here, and it's not just writing. But, you know, I'm just not impressed. And, like, the one thing I remember from the first time I watched this movie was how damsel in distress Jane was throughout this whole movie. And I know we're talking about Sif, but, like... Yeah. The fact that they present Sif as an option for Thor while also never bringing it up again, while also sidelining one of the most interesting female characters that we had out of the intro movies. Yeah, it just sort of draws attention to the fact that both of them got sidelined. Back on Earth, Darcy Lewis interrupts Jane Foster in the middle of a date to inform her that, quote, that scientific equipment you don't look at anymore, end quote, is registering some really weird readings. Richard, the guy that Jane is on her date with, is Chris O'Dowd, who was the love interest in one of my favorite rom-coms of all time, which is Bridesmaids. And he was also in an episode of The Twilight Zone in 2019. I knew about Bridesmaids, but I didn't know about The Twilight Zone. 
We also find out that Eric Selvig, having gone cuckoo after being mind-controlled by Loki in the Avengers, has been taken to a mental institution after terrorizing visitors at Stonehenge in the nude with scientific equipment. It was a lot of fun writing that line in the show notes, by the way. They go to an abandoned factory where a group of kids has found pockets of space where the laws of physics appear to not work so well. There's a truck floating in midair that one of the kids can manipulate by hand very easily, as well as portals in which objects can disappear and then reappear nearby. Jane ends up accidentally getting sucked into one of these portals and is transported to another world where, lo and behold, she finds the ether, which then joins itself to her. Can I please just note the similarities of the ether and Venom without completely disrailing our podcast as well as our friendship? I won't no. bring it up. I won't bring it up again at all this no, entire episode, I promise. No. Just no, the you one can't. time. Just no, once. No. Just this once. I won't say it again at all, I promise. You have my silence for the rest of the episode. I won't bring up Venom. But I would be doing a disservice to myself and the other Venom fans if I didn't mention the fact that they are incredibly similar. Okay, you owe me one. Okay. I mean, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, you still owe me one. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Square (sighs) deal. Let's go. That's all. I just wanted everybody to notice the similarities between the ether and venom. There are similarities between the ether and venom. Are you happy? Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Somewhere in deep space, Malekith's ship, which has been dormant for all this time, is awakened by the ether, along with Malekith himself. He says that the convergence has returned. Jane wakes up in the factory five hours after she disappeared. Thor, having become concerned when Heimdall can no longer see her, arrives in London to see Jane. It becomes immediately apparent to him that something is wrong with her so he takes her back to Asgard you know I never noticed the bit with the debris flying out of the Bifrost and Heimdall stepping out of its way right before Thor and Jane come back through the Bifrost I thought that was kind of funny just a little musing aside all the times I've seen this movie I never noticed that until this week Jane's demeanor so far and perhaps for the rest of the movie frankly seems so unlike the confident independent woman that we know her to be she's already spent most of her time in the movie moping about missing Thor and when he finally arrives it's like she's grown weak in the knees and is fawning all over him like a teenage girl like I cried I looked for you am I being too harsh am I not allowing her to be sufficiently vulnerable I mean I know what it's like to miss someone terribly maybe I'm applying a double standard to Jane that's not right No, I think you're fair in saying that. She was definitely written a lot better in the first movie. And of course, she's allowed to be sad and disappointed in Thor being gone. She likely didn't see him during the Battle of New York, given that she was sent far away and he had to deal with Loki. But it's pretty overboard. And I mean, I always kind of assumed that she knew where he was. It wasn't like he just up and left and was like, F you, girl I love, I'm running off into the sunset. (laughs) Like, he had to go home and she knew that. So I think it's a bit much and just again kind of takes her and slots her into this love interest so who cares about her actual character I think the best scene she has is right in this next scene where she's talking to the healers and gets to be a touch sciencey, which is two minutes max mm, yeah speaking of that scene as guardian healers try to figure out what's wrong with Jane all they know is that she's got an insane amount of energy coursing through her and that she'll die from it if it isn't removed Odin, already unhappy that Jane is on Asgard, is even further disturbed when he realizes that Jane is carrying the ether within her. He explains that it's one of several relics that predate the universe. Unlike the other relics which appear as stones, the ether is fluid. It turns matter into dark matter and seeks out host bodies to draw strength from their life force. It was created by Malekith to use as a weapon to return the universe to a state of darkness. The Dark Elves reigned over the time of darkness before the birth of the Nine Realms, apparently. Unfortunately, Odin doesn't know how to get the ether out of Jane. Wait, so I have a question. The ether predates the universe. It was created 
by Malekith. Because apparently, and yeah, this is kind of a weird thing. Supposedly the Dark Elves predated the universe. Huh. Which, yeah, I think that's kind of... I mean, yeah, we're, we're hinky, playing hinky games here. But yeah, we're playing some games here, but okay, sure, all right. We talk about the drawbacks in this movie. There you go. That's probably the first thing in this movie that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, although it's a little subtle. You know, I guess they figured most people weren't going to quibble over that. They weren't expecting... They weren't expecting I quibbled. They weren't expecting <laughs> podcasters to pick it apart eight years later. They weren't ready for Mark and Emily, were they? They weren't counting on, we can do this all day, and by this we mean quibble. <laughs> that should be one of our things. Quibble alert. <laughs> Quibble alert. That has to be a feature on the show. I, I have a have problem with your science. <laughs> we need like a sound effect. <laughs> Quibble alert. Meanwhile, on Svartalheim, Malekith has transformed Algrim into one of the cursed. The last of them, apparently. A sort of super dark elf with enhanced abilities. Malekith then launches his forces in the direction of Asgard, presumably to go and retrieve the Aether. We have a brief but very poignant scene between Loki and what turns out to be a projection of Frigga, made by her, according to various sources that I consulted, in which Frigga points out that Loki is so perceptive of everyone except himself. Honestly, and of course this might just be because I like characters that are coded as villains, but Loki is the best part of this movie, and he spends most of it in a cage. During one of their quieter moments, Thor explains to Jane that the alignment of the Nine Realms, the convergence that only happens once every 5,000 years, has happened again, and that the boundaries between the worlds often become blurred. He surmises that she accidentally found her way to the Aether through a portal created by this convergence. It's like astrology, but for ancient and futuristic alien civilizations. Unbeknownst to everyone else, Algrim has gained entry into the dungeon on Asgard, having passed himself off as one of the prisoners taken by the Warriors Three after one of their recent sieges. He activates his cursed superpowers and begins to release all of the inmates, except Loki, oddly enough. This distraction helps Malekith's ships approach Asgard undetected, although Heimdall is able to take one out early on, and they begin to attack. Heimdall attempts to raise some sort of shield around the palace, but it is disabled by Algrim. Heimdall's daggers are so awesome, and I always forget that Asgard is so... In the show notes I wrote futuristic, but I'm going to go with like technologically advanced, because you see their old school clothing and the swords and how they talk and then all of a sudden you remember that they're very knowledgeable planet-hopping aliens and they have more technology than, like, we could ever dream of on Earth. That scene with Heimdall running up the side of the bridge with his daggers mm -hmm. out, that's so cool. I do enjoy that battle, partly because, yes, we do get to see Heimdall do some really cool stuff. And also because we get to see Asgard's own defenses, which are very high tech. They're replete with fantastical energy weapons right out of a mid-80s sci-fi fantasy movie. And then you get those cool ships of Malekiths. I like how they do those quick quarter-turn rolls to maneuver between the buildings and such. I think it's a really cool fight. Malekith's forces make it into the palace and begin looking for Jane and the Aether. Frigga puts up a valiant fight against Malekith, but is slain while protecting Jane. Malekith is forced to flee without the Aether. Frigga gets a big Viking-style funeral with flaming arrows and everything. A guard wordlessly informs Loki of Frigga's death. We then cut back to London where Eric Selvig is explaining the convergence to his fellow mental patients, including Stan Lee in his obligatory cameo, and he declares that a new invention of his, Gravimetric Spikes, which I think is a ridiculous yet somehow brilliantly Star Trek-like name, can contain the focal points of the convergence, thus keeping the nine realms from phasing into each other uncontrollably. 
That short scene right after Eric in the ward with Jane and the ether is pretty creepy. Like, Jane even goes full on black eyes, which is uh, never a good sign. There is a lot of sort of demonic possession allegory in this movie, isn't there? Yeah, this movie has pretty good horror movie vibes. Like, the dark elves are creepy looking. Yeah, we talked about how Malekith just kind of has that, he's yes. got that Nosferatu look to him, yeah. Odin, Fendril, Volstag, and Thor meet to discuss strategy. The Asgardians have no way of detecting Malekith's ships, not even with Heimdall's help. Thor proposes to take Jane with him to Svartalheim. When Malekith attempts to draw the ether from her, Thor intends to destroy both it and Malekith. Odin, however, disagrees and instead plans to keep Jane on Asgard in order to draw Malekith there. Odin plans to fight to the death there, a plan which Thor tells him is foolhardy, as it puts so many Asgardian lives at risk. He asks Odin how this makes him any different than Malekith, to which Odin responds that the difference is that he, Odin, will win. Wow. That is some serious bleeping hubris coming from Odin, if you ask me. So, not only is he a crappy father, but he's a pretty lousy king to boot. I suppose I should give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, his wife was just murdered by a dark elf, so I'm sure he's got the feels going on right about now, but wow. Odin, A-plus father and A-plus king. Always right and never wrong. Darcy and her intern, Ian, still back in London and trying to get in contact with S.H.I.E.L.D., see a news report about Eric Selvig and his adventure at Stonehenge. Thor meets secretly with Heimdall, Sif, Fandral, and Volstagg to enlist their help in smuggling Jane off-world. In defiance of Odin's orders, he then reluctantly visits Loki, who has trashed his cell in grief and anger over the death of Frigga. He offers Loki the opportunity to enact vengeance against Malekith in exchange for his help in getting himself and Jane off-world. Loki accepts. That quick but fun little scene in which Loki pretends to be Steve Rogers, for those of you who didn't know, it's actually Tom Hiddleston wearing Cap's costume from Avengers. But they CGI'd Chris Evans' head onto his body and they used a voiceover by Chris Evans. I also love that he picks Steve because clearly he's still a little burned from their encounter in Avengers. And I also like the way that they tell this scene with the sort of b-roll slash action footage of what they're describing as they're describing it like how it flashes from thor at loki's cell back to the planning with the others or loki and thor doing their walk and talk down the hall back to the planning i feel like i see that a lot in the serial crime dramas or like heist movies yeah like heist movies Mm -hmm. that's what that felt like to me yeah here's the plan we're going to do this and this and this and then they actually show them doing this and this and this it's a very very effective technique With Heimdall, Sif, Fandral, and Volstagg all covering for them, Thor, Loki, and Jane escape the palace in one of Malekith's crashed ships, which apparently still flies. They then make a stealthy covert switch onto one of those cool Asgardian air skimmers, which Loki navigates into one of his secret portals that leads off of Asgard, in this case, to Svartalheim. Two things I like about this sequence. One, I love the return to the witty adversarial sibling banter between Thor and Loki that we really haven't seen since Thor, although the barbs are understandably a bit more pointed this time around. Two, I love how during the secret planning scenes, everyone constantly makes a point of basically saying, well, you do know Loki's going to try to screw us over, right? Also, notice how Sif is constantly staring daggers into Jane. She really must have the hots for Thor much more than we were led to believe. It's something that, as we've said before, is never touched upon again, as we never see Sif again in the films. She does make an appearance later that season on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but unfortunately I never saw that episode. That seems like kind of a shame, because... They play it up so much 
that they're practically telegraphing that it'll somehow come up again later on, but never does. I also think it's funny that Loki says that he likes Jane, but then he's also staring daggers into Jane. Uh, You know, obviously along with everyone else, but he's almost especially bratty to Jane or anything about her. I'm guessing that he's just interested in Jane because he's gaming ways of using her as leverage with Thor, because this is Loki we're talking about. After arriving on Svartalfheim, Thor and Loki argue yet again, culminating in Loki lambasting Thor for not being able to save Frigga, Thor blasting Loki for not being able to help save Frigga because he's landed himself in the dungeon. I love the exchange where Thor says, I wish I could trust you, to which Loki replies, trust my rage. Darcy and Ian spring Selvig and his gravimetric spikes from the mental institution. Selvig's theories about the convergence and the portals are proven right only moments later, as a flock of starlings flies into a portal in the middle of the sky and then emerges from another portal in the ground directly underneath of them. Back on Svartalheim, Thor, Loki, and Jane approach Malekith and his ship. Loki appears to attack Thor and wound him, and then presents Jane to Malekith as a gift in exchange for a good seat from which to watch Asgard burn. Algrim remembers Loki being in the dungeon, and can thus confirm that he is an enemy of Asgard. Malekith takes Jane and removes the ether from her, at which point it is revealed that Loki's attack on Thor was a ruse, as Thor uses Mjolnir to apparently destroy the ether while Loki protects Jane, apparently being the operative word, as the ether ends up reconstituting itself and entering Malekith, who then escapes in his ship and leaves Algrim slash Curse and some of his goons on the planet to face Thor and Loki. In the ensuing fight, we see, on the one hand, Thor getting an absolute beatdown at the hands of Algrim, but on the other hand, we see Loki, who we're not really used to seeing in serious hand-to-hand combat sequences, absolutely tear through Malekith's henchmen, almost as if they were nothing. I think it's a good reminder, too, that just like Loki isn't just a witch, warlock, wizard, whatever, in the same way that Thor isn't just a jock with lightning and a hammer, they were both raised the same way, with the same skills, by the same people, and that's why they're fighting with each other about Frigga earlier was enlightening to me, at least, where Thor says something like, you had her tricks, but I had her trust, which was... More of a dig and less of the truth, because they likely had both. Loki kills Algrim, but not before, apparently, there's that word again, suffering a fatal wound at Algrim's hand. As Loki dies in Thor's arms, Thor promises to tell their father what he did there that day, to which Loki replies, I didn't do it for him. Right, so how many times does Loki die? You know, he is the trickster god after all, and you can't trust him for anything. Well, except his rage. Hence Thanos' line at the beginning of Infinity War, where he says, no more resurrections. Although, clearly, given that we have a Loki series, some version of Loki is still alive. That's true, that's true. Thor and Jane enter a cave, fearing they are trapped on Svartalheim, until Jane's phone rings, and they discover several of the objects that went missing from inside the abandoned factory in London. Sure enough, they inadvertently entered a portal and returned to London near the factory before reuniting with Darcy, Selvig, and Ian at Jane's apartment. Thor's little, hmm, I think this weird wooden frame will hold my hammer, but I'm gonna be super gentle just in case... When he walks into the apartment is like one of those funny things like when he smashes the cup at the diner and all of the weird misunderstandings that he has given that he is an alien. There are lots of little moments in this movie that are just very appropriate. That Thor humor, it's one of the things that just makes a Thor movie a Thor movie. And they still had that, I think, down overall pretty good in this film. The coat rack is worthy. We'll have to remember that when we come back and do the little elevator discussion from the end of Age of Ultron. On Svartalheim, we see green flashes of very Loki-like energy 
coalesce around a mysterious Asgardian soldier. Next, we see that very same soldier on Asgard informing Odin that Loki is dead and that Thor and the Aether are missing. Hmm. On Earth, Jane deduces that Malekith plans to use the Convergence to amplify the power of the Aether and spread it to all corners of the universe. Having deduced that the focal point of the Convergence on Earth is in Greenwich, the team goes there to try and set up the gravimetric spikes in the hopes of nullifying the Convergence just as Malekith arrives. He and Thor fight. Because the Convergence is about to happen and the Nine Realms are lining up, the number of portals leading to different places in the area is very high. Thus, Thor and Malekith end up falling through different portals through Earth, Svartalheim, Vanaheim, Jotunheim, and back again, and over again as they fight. Jane, Selvig, Darcy, and Ian are able to use the gravimetric spikes to somewhat manually control the intensity and size of some of the portals, and are thus able to portalize Malekith and his troops away from the Earth just as the convergence reaches its climax, and Malekith is about to spread the ether across the Nine Realms. Malekith is transported back to Svartalheim, followed by his ship, which then falls over and crushes him. I like watching Thor and Malekith fall between the Nine Realms as they fight. In particular, I really think it's fun watching Mjolnir try to keep up with Thor as he falls. Because they fall through one portal and he ends up in a different place, like on a different planet, and you see Mjolnir sort of suddenly changing course and having to go in a different direction very, very fast. And it's fun to see, for example, the big nasty ice monster from Jotunheim that we saw in the first Thor movie. He gets transported to Greenwich in time to eat one of Malekith's troops. Other than that, however, I think this fight makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Was the point of the sticks to make the portals less intense? If so, then why did the portals get to a point such that Thor and Malekith are falling through all nine realms as they fight? And how exactly did they send Malekith back to Svartalheim? I mean, did Thor use Mjolnir to push him through the portal? Or push him through a portal? It's like nobody bothered to choreograph the rhyme or reason behind anything in this fight. And the screenwriters just thought, hey, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense, the audience will think it looks cool, and that's all that matters. Because if that's the case, that's really lazy and, frankly, really kind of cynical. I don't know how much... Marcus and McFeely had to do with writing this part of the script, but I'm going to be really disappointed in them if they did have a lot to do with it, because most of the scene is just a mess. Like we said at the beginning, I spent this whole time watching this movie trying to figure out why I've been saying that I hate it so much, because I really haven't had a ton to complain about so far. And even in the beginning, when we ranked them, like I feel like I was rather generous, because I want to leave the end of my rankings to move stuff around, generally. But... Then we got to this final fight, you know, the boss fight, if you will, and I remembered. Like, it, it does look cool, but there's just nothing here. There's no rhyme or reason to anything, really, and it's not even that long compared to other final fight scenes in other MCU movies. And aside from our little jaunt on the London tube, it's basically void of people, which just felt really weird. And I think maybe that might be my problem with this whole movie, is that even though there are people, obviously, it feels really empty. Everyone's just missing. I do get that sense, too there are still people around. You've got the scenes in London and in the library and Vanaheim and on Asgard, and yet, for some reason, the reality of the movie is more like Svartalheim, where there's, like, nothing there, like this barren wasteland. It just kind of has that feel of nobody else being around. So that's a really interesting observation. I think you're right. I don't know why it is that it feels that way, but it does. And none of the other movies, like, even the movies that I ranked lower than this one, still feel like there are 
people there. Like, there are things happening. I think the fact that in this battle in particular, there wasn't much in the way of having to, like, save the civilians. And I've been to Greenwich. It's not that far away from, like, the center of London. There would be people there. Mm -hmm. But we just don't see much of it. And there's just, it's, I feel like it's just completely detached from the reality of the MCU in general. And I think that might be what I hated about it when I watched it. It's like everyone forgot that Malekith invaded Greenwich. Thor returns to Asgard to decline Odin's offer to take the throne, citing that he'd rather be a good man than a great king. He also tells him that Loki died with honor. As Thor departs, Odin changes form to reveal that he is actually Loki. In a mid-credits sequence, Volstagg and Sif visit the Collector, played by Benicio Del Toro in a cameo, his first appearance in the MCU, to entrust him with the Aether, stating that the Tesseract is already on Asgard, and that it's not safe to keep two Infinity Stones, the first time we hear that term used, so close together. As Volstagg and Sif leave, the Collector says, one down, five to go. Hmm, what could he possibly be talking about? In a post credit sequence, Thor returns to London and is reunited with Jane. Elsewhere in London, the frost monster from Jotunheim continues to run amok. So that is our encapsulation of the story. Here's the part where we talk about characters and actors. Starting, of course, with Chris Hemsworth as Thor. He was fine. I didn't <laughs> I didn't really see any change in him besides the fact that he's sad in this movie. There's mm-hmm. no real growth like we saw in the first movie. Honestly, I liked his clothes more in this movie, but that's about all I got. His outfit is darker and it's less colorful, looks more used and lived in. He's got the straighter hair now. It's less mullety looking, I suppose. Well, and his cool black cloak that he wears for a lot of the movie. Speaking of the cloak, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, like right as Malekith is attacking Asgard and Thor's like, okay, yeah, I better get out there. And he runs toward the balcony. He ditches the cloak as he dives off the balcony and does a spin in midair. And while he's in midair, Mjolnir flies by and he catches him. So it's like he dives off with like nothing in his hand and he does a spin midair and he catches Mjolnir in midair and takes off. It just looks really, really cool. Thor doesn't really grow in this movie. It's like he did all of his growing in the first movie and in Avengers and now he's just reacting to everything. Make no mistake, Chris Hemsworth as always does a fantastic job of making him likable and appropriately heroic, but this movie is mainly here to service the future of the MCU. Thor is just here to service the plot of this film, it seems to me. An observation I had about Thor in this movie relates to another observation I made about Tony in Iron Man 3. How he went from one extreme, hedonistic playboy, to the other, anxious paranoid person always preparing for the next world-ending crisis. We see the same kind of thing with Thor now. He starts off bombastic, selfish man-child, and now he's this brooding, serious, sulking mess. You know, oh, I miss my girlfriend. Oh, I'm not ready to be king. Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Stellar. Great. Honestly, the best part of this movie. I really liked that we got to see his grief over Frigga and his disappointment in, yet again, not being respected by Odin the same way that Thor is respected. And as well as we get to see more of his fighting abilities, especially given that he was smashed into the ground quite literally in the Avengers. (laughs) And I really liked the reveal of his destroyed cell when Thor came to tell him the plan. I thought that was really well done and that despite all of this, Loki doesn't want Thor to know that he was just as upset as he was. It almost feels like he doesn't want anything in common with Thor, even though they have everything in common. Even though Loki is, you know, this pseudo villain, he did protect Jane multiple times in that fight before, you know, he <laughs> died. But he's multifaceted, and I think this movie really shows that. The way Tom Hiddleston carried off the fairly 
subtle grief. Aside from, you know, when he beats up all of those dark elves on Svartalheim, you see the trash cell after he's already done it. He talks about, you know, trust my rage. But it's just real subtle how he shows his grief, and he conveys it in such a way that the audience knows without him having to show it. It's brilliant how he does this. You know Loki is really hurting. I will go so far as to say that Frigga's death bothered Loki more than it bothered Thor. I mean, obviously, it's it's Thor's biological mother. Of course, he's torn apart. But I think Loki is particularly wrecked by this because he had such a contentious relationship with Odin and kind of a weird, contentious relationship with Thor. But I think his relationship with Mom was very real to him. I think that it was a very meaningful relationship. And I think he really did love her and treasure her as his adoptive mom. And she's gone. So I think he's really reeling from that. He plays that magnificently. I agree with you that he's easily the best part of the movie. Unfortunately, that's also a bit of a problem, not just for this movie, but for Thor and Avengers as well. In my opinion, Loki should never be more popular than Thor. But up through this movie, he has been. I've said it already. I love Loki as much as you, as much as anyone does. He's this wonderfully complex and multifaceted character played brilliantly by Tom Hiddleston. His presence in the MCU has been rightfully pivotal to its success. But at the same time, a Thor movie should be about Thor. And I know that's one of the things that Taika Waititi set out to do in Ragnarok, to make Thor the star of his own movie for once. He kind of set up Thor as a character that could stand on his own, and Marcus and McFeely were able to carry that on admirably in Infinity War and Endgame. Natalie Portman as Jane Foster. She does have a few good scenes, but overall I think she's definitely lost to the sands of distressed female love interest and bad writing. You know, she was at her best when she was on Asgard, I think because she finally got to see what she's been looking for since before the first Thor movie and before Thor crashed into her life. But a lot of what tied her back to Earth just made her kind of lame. Well, I disagree with you slightly because I find Jane most interesting when she's actually being a scientist. And while we get a few flashes of that on Asgard, most of the scientist stuff happens, understandably, on Earth later on in the movie. But I do agree that she spends most of this movie either fawning for Thor or just being a vessel for the ether. She spends most of the movie being another object being sought after. You're wasting an Oscar-winning actress. Kat Dennings as Darcy Lewis. Darcy might have been the only person that didn't get all weird between the first Thor movie and this movie, and I actually really appreciate her for that. This is an episode about WandaVision, obviously, and I will admit that I am quite a few episodes behind, but I can almost sense a bit of WandaVision Darcy in this movie as well. She's still hilarious and obviously the comedic relief, like in the first movie, but I feel like you can see the wheels turning a bit to get her to where she is in the current day of the MCU. We do get this nice role reversal with Darcy. In the first movie, she was kind of clueless about a lot of the stuff, and it was Jane who was usually having to point her in the right direction, but clearly Darcy's taken a great interest in Jane's and Eric's work since that movie and has learned a lot about astrophysics and how space and time and the universe all work to the point where Jane's the one who's gone all spacey and it's Darcy who has to smack her back to reality like hey boss wake up and smell the strange cosmic energy readings will ya and yet Darcy's still got that quirky irreverent edge to her she's funny but clueless in Thor I think she's a little 
too serious in WandaVision. So to me, Dark World Darcy Lewis is her at her most balanced, and in some ways, in my opinion, the most enjoyable. Stellan Skarsgård as Eric Selvig. I feel like now that we've gotten through the sort of big main characters, I'm kind of just going to shrug my way through the rest of the characters in this movie. Like I said towards the end of the review, this movie felt empty, and it wasn't until that final fight scene that I realized that was the problem I had. But looking back towards everything that happened and how the characters interacted, there's just nothing here. I know that we talked about seeing Eric's sort of suffering after what happened with Loki and the Avengers, but I just didn't care about it. Yeah, the crazy Selvig gag was funny for a bit in this movie, but it just got old really quickly. And then, you know, after he's let out of the institution, he spends the rest of the movie just spouting technobabble and, again, servicing the plot. And he's just wasted. Christopher Eccleston as Malekith. I didn't find Malekith incredibly villainous in this movie, but I did think that he was cool. Not as a villain or a fighter, but just the general style. I liked the hair. I liked the masks. I liked the makeup. It gave this movie, like we talked about before, a more like sinister horror movie vibe. But Malekith himself didn't bring that same energy for me. And he was clearly a worthy adversary, especially given that Boar wasn't able to fully defeat him back in the old days, but he just wasn't that impressive to me. Yeah, he looks really menacing, and that's a good thing, but I wish he felt more menacing. What should be one of the more interesting and provocative villains in the MCU ends up being really one-dimensional. He's kind of the stereotype of the so-called Marvel villain problem that people talked about during the early years of the MCU. And it's a shame, because I I think Christopher Eccleston is a great actor. I've seen him in a few things, and, you know, especially that one season he was on Doctor Who. I'm not a big Doctor Who fan, but I did like that one season quite a bit, in large part because of him. Anthony Hopkins as Odin. Odin is surprisingly less of a jerk in this movie than he was in the last one. He's pretty rude to Thor, of course, especially when it comes to his feelings for Jane. But in the last movie, he was banishing his sons and literally being abusive. And this time, he's like, yeah, you tried to take over Midgard, but, like, jail for a thousand years or whatever is totally fine and he seems just tired and over it he was very rude he called jane a goat that's just (laughs) wow you're gonna insult your son's girl like that that's just pretty low yeah so i think he was rude but not i don't want to say evil because he's not evil either but just kind of a jerk like a crotchety old man in this one just kind of a pompous ass you know oh humans mortals well you know you're gonna die too it's just gonna take ten thousand years you know you talk about him being tired and over it all maybe that's why he's pushing thor to be king he's like i just want to retire i'm gonna go play golf during the day sit at home and watch cbs primetime procedurals at night i still can't get past the whole the difference between malekith and me is that i'll win speech you say something like that you're just done your time as leader is over at that point Idris Elba as Heimdall. I really liked him in this movie. He clearly didn't get much in the way of screen time or speaking time in the last Thor movie. But in this one, I like that he gets to consult Thor and leave that Bifrost area that he was basically confined to for the last movie. You know, he's sitting at the table talking to Thor and he's part of the group instead of just this, let's check in with what Heimdall thinks. Occasionally when we feel like it, he's like actively involved in the way the movie goes. And also, of course, his dagger attack on the ship when Malekith attacks Asgard. Since I've talked about it so much, it might as well just be my favorite scene in the movie. I was going to say, you've pointed it out so much. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Idris Elba makes any movie cool. 
Jamie Alexander as Sif. Jamie Alexander actually suffered a really bad back injury on set. In an interview with MTV back then, she said, quote, I herniated a disc in my thoracic spine. I dislocated my left shoulder. I tore my right rhomboid and chipped 11 of my vertebrae. Apparently, she fell down a metal staircase on set. Obviously, we're relieved that she recovered. That's just, <laughs> wow. We do get to see Sif fight a bit in this movie, and we get to see her give Jane that, I want to start a cat fight with this chick. Look, we do see her in the Warriors 3 having Thor's back. Maybe not as much as in the first movie, but at least we get to see them a bit. And I will have lots to say about them, as in Sif and the Warriors 3, when we get around to our Ragnarok review, as they are the focal point of what's probably my biggest gripe with that movie. As I said earlier, this is the last time we see Sif on the big screen, and that's kind of a shame. And again, it just makes me wonder, what was the point of bringing up even the possibility that there could be a future between her and Thor in a romantic sense? Was it just to add tension, or were the writers just incapable of writing a character like Thor to have a normal friendship with a fellow warrior who happened to be a female? <laughs> like, I, I truly don't understand what happened. Because I know with Jane, there was like a real world reason why she was not in the rest of the MCU. But we don't really get that with Sif the character. There's not really an MCU explanation or a real world explanation for why that even happened in the first place. As we will find out in Ragnarok, you know, at least there's an explanation for why we don't see the Warriors 3 anymore after that but Sif just outright disappears after this movie in terms of the films and then after her appearance on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later that season after that she's gone and no one has anything to say about it I just think that really sucks because I like her a lot well and so much of what happened in this movie between her and Thor could just be subtext you wouldn't even know unless you were actively paying attention and you were like 16 or older you know like someone who had concerned themselves with romance and so it's like, okay, none of that needed to even be in the movie. You guys were just writing stuff to write it. I guess we'll never know. We'll never know if they had a plan and it got scrapped or they just did it for the hell of it. The Warriors 3. Ray Stevenson as Volstagg, Zachary Levy as Fandral, and Todonobu Asano as Hogan. Again, it's nice to see them all for a bit, having Thor's back and all, except Hogan, who all but disappears after the opening fight on Vanaheim. I like to give the benefit of the doubt, but I can't help but be at least a little suspicious when, you know, a fellow Asian brother gets sidelined like that, you know, I just, um... I can't help but wonder, but I will try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm hoping there was a reasonable explanation for his absence. Zachary Levy replaces Joshua Dallas as Fandral. Dallas was tied up with the TV series Once Upon a Time and had to be recast. And I think he does an admirable job. He's starting to carve out his own little niche in the superhero movie world as Shazam over in DC. Chris O'Dowd as Richard. Honestly, the only reason I know Chris O'Dowd at all is that he was a guest on the Graham Norton show along with Ewan McGregor, and they were playing with lightsabers. That's the only reason I know him at all. Well, he was in Bridesmaids, which, like I said, is one of my favorite rom-coms. And what little bit he does have in this movie is a touch of comedic relief, which isn't necessary. My experience with Thor is kind of all comic relief to some degree. I think the one interesting thing about Richard as the character is that it does highlight Jane's confusing behavior towards Thor of this whole, I looked for you, but don't get mad that I tried to move on, as if she wouldn't also be upset if Thor had actively done something with Sif. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. It just adds that. another layer of like weird stuff that's not necessary. Yeah. For the movie. More subtext that you wonder after the fact, why was it there? Adewale Ekonoye 
Agbahe as Algrim slash Curse. Again, another good actor who just is kind of there in the film. I liked him in Lost, what little of that show I actually watched, but other than that, I don't have a whole lot else to say. Honestly, I barely remember him. You could line up a list of Malekith's goons from this movie, and I wouldn't be able to point him out to you. Well, it came, after he became cursed, you know, he's got that big honking helmet with the horns on the rest of the movie, and that's it. He just kind of stomps around and looks all menacing and stuff. This is the part where I usually talk about the film's score. The score for this film is done by Brian Tyler. This is Brian Tyler's second of his three Marvel scores. It's not one of my favorites, but it's still pretty good. I think it sounds better if you listen to it on its own, which I did once again earlier this afternoon. I think it tends to get lost a bit in the movie itself, but you know, it's good. It seems very video gamey to me. That's something I noticed upon listening to it again. It's very appropriate with all the epic fantasy notes and the rousing choir and all that, so it works. Am I wrong in noticing that some of this movie's music sounds a little bit like Spider-Man's music, at least in Far From Home? Am I just going crazy? I don't think you're going crazy. Brian Tyler and Michael Giacchino, they do have some similar percussion styles, uh, especially when you compare Brian Tyler to Giacchino's Spider-Man scores specifically. And I suppose there are some similarities between Tyler's main Thor theme and Giacchino's main Spider-Man theme. There's certain notes and sort of the way the melody goes that are very similar. So yeah. I mean, I don't think you're going crazy. And that is it for our review of Thor The Dark World. Thank you for joining us, all you listeners out there in listener land. In a few more weeks, we will be back with the big one, the one that we've been waiting for a long time, our favorite MCU film, Captain America The Winter Soldier. And we've got something a little special planned for you for that one. So stay tuned. That one is going to be a hoot and a holler, as they say. Just y'all wait. So we'll see you in a few weeks. I'm, I'm reserving my excitement because there's going to be a lot of excitement in March. Falcon and the Winter Soldier is going to be here. We're going to record Winter Soldier. It's just, you know, I'm trying to ease my way into a very excitable, tumultuous month. There's going to be a lot of buckiness in March of 2021. Let's just put it this way. Emily will have ample opportunity to let that rip during our Winter Soldier review. But until then, thank you all for listening. Take care of yourselves and have a good night. See you later. See you later.